0: Welcome to Internet Misfits, a podcast that explores new, exciting futures and the people building them. We focus on creators and entrepreneurs who see the world differently. I'm Joe Cohen, your host and the founder and CEO of Universe, an app that lets anyone build an amazing website and online store with just their phone. In this podcast, I try to get at the essence of our guests' unique ways of seeing the world and understand really what makes them tick. My hope is that you leave with new learnings, tools, and inspiration to build out your own dreams. Let's dive in. Today we've got Abe Burmeister on the podcast. Abe, I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So Abe is the founder of one of my favorite brands. It's a company called Outlier. They are a, I would say, avant-garde slash like just techware brand that I've been following for probably a decade and been really pushing the envelope on what really the future of thing think apparel and, and gear is like. i am been mean, really pioneers in the whole tech wear movement. But I've been a fan and a customer for a while. I've gotten to know Abe a little bit over the years. I'm stoked to have you here, Abe. Yeah. Oh
1: excited to be here and and talk uh I don't know we're gonna talk tech, right?
0: We'll talk everything.
1: All right, cool. So how are things going? Uh well I mean the world's crazy <laughs> as always. You know, right now it's like we're in this middle, like bank crisis thing, right? right. So we know that. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that because it's interesting. It's like a, a crisis of confidence in a way, right? You have like, um, you know, a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank, right? So you have like, you know, founders are generally like pretty cocky people, and you know they've successfully raised money to get to the founder stage, right? So they they've got some level of success behind them. So these are not people that ordinarily just panic right mm. and start a bank run so that's it's an interesting environment it's like what what sort of circumstances lead these type of people to like to panic right and bank runs are old right there are man- manias and panics and you know this is as old as there there have been markets there's been stuff like this right so but it's an interesting sort of psychological grounding so you know trying to make sense of it right now
0: i was uh in the middle of it. We banged with SVB. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, God. And uh, so I have a little bit of an inside experience on it. I hear you on the, like, the sort of panic conflicting with the confidence. It seems yeah. like on the outside is needed to do, to do a company or for a founder to have. But I, for me, it was actually pretty familiar. And I think it panic is the flip side of hype. Yeah. And Silicon Valley runs on hype. And I think that when you connect the, the natural ethos of like a, a boom and bust economic cycle with social media and the ability for information to travel and action to be taken so quickly on that information, for example, withdrawing your money, it can have real effects. And I think the bank run was like the latest example of it. But I think we've been doing this in various different formats for the past 5 10 years and it's only accelerating. So I don't really see it as as much of a conflict as as just another iteration of its expression.
1: But I mean at the same time it's like, you know, like people think of banks as like this big secure mm-hmm. thing, right? We're not like even though like banks have been failing our whole lives, like, you know, I'm old enough to have been around in the savings and loan crisis and Right? But it's like boring, right? You don't even think about yeah. it. You just think, oh, your money's in the bank, no problem. So all these founders just, they thought it was as good as gold, right? Yeah. But, and then they're like, wait, this can just vanish overnight. Like I, I lent money to the bank. I didn't, I'm not just storing it there, right? Like that's, uh, there's a, a ground shift, right? And they bring you back to fashion, which is like MySpace, right? Like, you know, there's, there's definitely this, a big like return to, like it's a conservative turn like mm. you really see it in the, these last season shows and it's been happening for a long time in different ways but like the shows got like more reserved and quieter and like grayer right mm. it's like uh like the luxury brands want to go back to like their core kind of consumer space rather than expansiveness right so there's this kind of like overall i see like kind of like a retreat to the familiar mm. in a lot of spaces right but you know, bank is something familiar. It's stable, right? You're like, oh, we're going back to the stable ground. And all of a sudden that stable ground is is not as stable as you thought it was. So it's an interesting environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, what's interesting about that, and I like the connection to fashion because, you know, it seems like the weirder things get, the more we like retreat to safety. Yeah, oh, I mean, of course. So do you, th- is that when you think in terms of fashion and that kind of like reservation, do you think that's a reaction to just the craziness of the world? Definitely. The less, like, when
1: you're really comfortable and you're, like, a little bored, you're like, I want something new. I want something exciting. I want right. something that changed my mind a little bit, right? Because you're in a position where you're open to that. And when you're, like, tired of surprises because mm. they keep coming and they keep, like, discombobulating you, right? You want you mm. want to sit on a, you know, somewhere warm and cozy and stable and, like, return to something familiar. And everybody has different zones, you know, people, you know, in fashion, it's interesting, like people who are in the avant-garde fashion, you know, it's very rare that they're eating like avant-garde food too, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's hard to, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like going to the craziest restaurants, wearing the craziest clothes, doing the craziest sports or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like you can push the extremes in all these dynamics, but most people only do it in, in certain parameters, right? And then other parts of their lives might be like super conservative, even though if, mm-hmm. if like their outward appearance might be crazy or their, you know, business practices or, you know, the code mm-hmm. they're writing, whatever it is, right? People can push in certain levels and they have to like have their their stable ground as well.
0: And do you think that's just like for balance?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, if you're in like a a full space of relativity, right? You have no fixed point to measure anything off of like, you're just gonna bounce around, right? You need to like have some sort of grounding in order to actually
0: build something, Mm. right? Yeah, that resonates. It's like you can be extreme in certain areas. I mean, otherwise you sort of devolve into chaos, but it's almost hard to even really hit that super high extreme note If you're not, yeah, stable in in other areas. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. I'm curious, like pulling a thread on fashion, like from your perspective, is it another flavor of conservative? Because I'm not in that world, but you know, I'm in New York, I see on the street. Like it feels almost like post-conservative or like a post-modern conservative where it's not, at least from my perspective, like classic Ivy in its original state, but like almost like a twisted version of it. I'm curious how you see it.
1: In terms of where fashion is now?
0: Yeah, or like when you talk about fashion being in this conservative moment, how much of it is like literal throwback to a previous time versus just, like you said, the forms being more reserved, like, you know, darker tones, less color, things like that. There's two sort of things, like this sort of like a
1: heritage type of conservative, right? Mm. Which is somewhat outside of fashion, but although it's there, right? And then there's just like, yeah, this sort of like low risk, low you know, like not, you know, trying to reserved like type of fashion, like kind of retreat to the to the core principles. And you have to remember when we're talking about fashion, we're in New York, right? We're in Brooklyn, North Brooklyn, right? Mm. And This is where things are changing fast and people who are, you know, there's a a giant fashion industry in New York. People are drawn to New York because of it, right? And the periphery around it, right? Like Mm -hmm. whether it's art or architecture, right? So we have these industries here. And so you're going to see the people who are pushing it the fastest and and the most around Mm -hmm. you. And that's going to influence How even people who aren't in the industry, like because they're surrounded by, you know, they go to a restaurant, they're sitting next to somebody in fashion, right? Or their friend is, Mm. right? Like, so it permeates the whole culture. Like I went to school in Southern California and it was really, really interesting seeing people who came from Southern California. There weren't that many New Yorkers there, right? But like a decent amount of people like came to New York eventually and like just watching them change how they dress Mm. and their perspective as they came to this, you know, it's like, it's very fast. It's like, you can't, and part of it's just college versus like the real world. But a lot of it's just like you enter an environment where these aesthetic sort of drives like are are propagating and and affects you
0: Mm. whether you like it or not. (laughs) So Abe, I'm curious, you know, navigating this like, balance of heritage and sort of avant-garde, Outlier feels to me like it really at that balance where like you think about, I would imagine that you think about that more than most. Because, you know, when I first found Outlier in the early 2010s, it, you know, it was like practical clothing that was made out of strong materials, but it was not like pushing the envelope on fashion. How do you think about that balance?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we definitely weren't pushing the envelope on fashion at the time, but I think the key thing that that's hard to see and particularly like visually see is we're very much about materials and structure. Mm. And so like what we were trying to do, you know, I started the project in 2006, we launched in 2008. Right. So at that time it was, the environment was a little different. And so, what I was trying to do was like bring this entire world of advanced functionality that mm. was that really at that time was only in like outdoor world and like not e- it was barely in the sports world like the very high performance stuff that like mm. people might actually wear on the field had some of it but it really like mostly was focused in the outdoor world and then you have like other crazy industries like firefighters and the military right, right? you know I, I once looked at a fabric that was designed for They made suits for people who clean nuclear reactors, right? It was like, I never found a use for that material, but it was crazy. (laughs) And it was less, like, crazy looking than you might think. Mm. It was an interesting material. So, at that point, the act of, like, kind of bringing this technology into everyday wear was kind of like, that was the avant-garde act, Mm. right? That was the energy. And people don't really realize it because when you step back, like, you know, 10 years later and, like, You know, what we were doing and we really were like some of the first to do this stuff. There were predecessors, people who tried, but like we kind of like cracked open the code in a little bit of a way. And so now it's everywhere. You go into Banana Republic or you go get some Dockers, right? There's stuff that we pioneered that's in these materials. So now it seems very, you know, when you look at what we did, like in that Mm -hmm. context, it seems quite conservative. But the fact mm-hmm. is that that nobody was putting four-way stretch materials into pants. Nobody was putting water-resistant treatments into these things unless it was like a hardcore hiking garment. And it's interesting, I love the outdoor industry, but they really don't get the aesthetics of you living in New York and like what it means, right? Like they did all like three years and years of precedent of like, different outdoor brands being like, let's do a city line, we can expand. Like, we're not just outdoors, right? And then they just throw extra right. random zippers and logos and, you know, things that just like, you just don't wanna wear every day, right? So the parameters changed, but like, you know, from my perspective, like, we were always trying to, to push that, you know, that limits. Like, so there was there was always this avant-garde element to it. It just wasn't visible. It was right. like a structural avant-garde, a material avant-garde and that sort of era is over right these materials are now like pervasive throughout the industry right Mm. and so that gives us the ability to to play in like in other parameters right aesthetics and shape and Mm. so it opens up the possibility space in certain ways but it's interesting because a lot of people react to the visual aspect of it which used to be much more you know, paired back, and we were expanding and opening that side up a lot.
0: Mm. You know, when I first encountered the brand, you know, the product was like a dungaree, right? But it was done in, like, a fabric that was water-resistant, that didn't smell, that didn't tear, and I switched from jeans, and it was, like, it's amazing, right? Because, like, denim is just so... There's so many problems with denim. It's uncomfortable. It stains. It's just... It rips, you know, and like here you had this thing that was like better in every way. And I hear you, that was like a transgressive thing. It was different in and of itself.
1: Yeah, totally. Like, I mean, that, that was a, in the climate we were doing it and convincing people that they, you know, that this should exist, right? And we kind of, we succeeded, which is great. And, you know, we weren't the only ones, but we really like were right there at that get-go. So how did you get to that place? I was destroying my genes. <laughs> it was dead. It's funny, you know, I like as a kid, I grew up here in, in New York and I never rode a bike at all when I was a kid. Mm. My parents made me ride one mile. They were like, you got to ride a mile on this bicycle. Mm. And I did the mile and I like put the thing aside and I was like, I want to be on the subway. It's way cooler mm. on the subway, right? But this is like an eight year old. <laughs> um, and, you know, I was in my 20s and I discovered that biking the city was like super fun, yeah. right? And it was like transformative. I was sick of riding the subway after like a, you know twenty years yeah. <laughs> growing up on the subway and being outside and and moving around. And it was it was so I loved it, right? And then I would just keep destroying my jeans, right? Like insanely fast, and I'd patch them up and like destroy And I was like, this is just absurd, you know, like. And I later learned as I got deeper into the industry that a lot of, like, the jeans that were really popular at the time were, like, not intentionally designed to, like, fall apart really quickly, but, but like, they're designed to age really quickly, right? They're designed Mm. to, like, take on visual character, really interesting. Like, the patina, and that stuff's beautiful. I still love that stuff. And that was sort of the innovation. Like, Levi's, like, had spent, like literally 100 years working with their partner, Cone Mills Denim, right? Like in North Carolina, like perfecting denim so that it Hmm. didn't fade, that it didn't braid, right? Like they like, and there's actually like this class of like motorcycle enthusiasts that I only met one of them. So I don't know how big it really is, but that absolutely like fetishizes this like particular, like the sort of endpoint of Levi's in like the mid 80s when they had like perfected a certain type of denim that was like, basically indestructible. And then right at that point, like the the people who love jeans decided they want to go the other way because, mm. you know, what they loved about the jeans was not that they were indestructible, but that they like took on character mm. and aged, right? And so, you know, something like an APC, went and like undid everything that Levi's like innovated to do. And like, we're like, no, that's gonna like reduce it back to the point where hmm. it's like a 1950s Levi's where like you wear it and it breaks in and like you get all these whiskers and lines and stuff. At that particular point, I was like wearing denim that was designed to fall apart essentially. <laughs> and I was like, I need something better. And so I went shopping. And I figured I'd spend an afternoon and like find a pair of pants that was better than than the jeans I was wearing and that I could bike around the city and I could go to work. I was a freelance graphic designer, information designer. And, you know, in that environment, some places you can wear anything you want and some places you have to look pretty professional, right? Hmm. So, And I just wanted to be able to ride my bike to a client meeting, not really worry if it might rain a little bit. Obviously, you don't want to ride through a giant rainstorm to a client meeting, but like you know, light Mm -hmm. rain, 50% chance of rain, you know, just really simple things, right? Just to move around the city. And I also didn't want to destroy my jeans. And so I went shopping and I was like, there's nothing here. Mm -hmm. And like, it took like a year of like looking and like being like, there's gotta be something better out there. And finally I was like, I guess I gotta learn how to make these things because I still wanted them Mm -hmm. and they didn't exist. So, but I had, you know, found like interesting fabrics that people weren't using and like to do what, and to make what I wanted, right? But were great. So I dove in, I started like just asking questions in the garment district, you know, just Mm. wandering around and, you know, the garment district. I mean, I think you know this really well. Is like this remnant of something that used to be gigantic, Mm. right? It was like 90% of the clothes in America used to come from the New York, garment extended New York garment district, not just like Manhattan, but, but literally like this insane amounts of clothing coming from Manhattan and going across the country, which is mind boggling. I think yeah. about that. And there's still like a few billion dollars worth of clothes made in Manhattan every year. Wow. Right. And this is like literally basically Times Square, you know, it's like, crazy. so I dove in and it was fascinating. I was like, you know, like doing these like really high tech freelance projects like in Midtown and then walking across Midtown to the Garment District. And it was like going from like the 21st century to the 19th <laughs> century, right? But I loved it. It was super fun. And and I fell in love with the technical materials. I was like, there's so much interesting stuff happening in this space. You know, just sort of spiraled from there. I had a really fortuitous like meeting with my business partner, Our coffee shop introduced us. They had two locations at the time. And like the barista was like, hey, give me your email. There's this customer that goes to our other location. I'm going to see him this afternoon. Like she knew. She was like guaranteed he would come in for his like afternoon coffee. (laughs) And he's doing exactly what you're doing. And he was like doing stuff with shirts. Wow. Same problem. He was like trying to bike over the bridge and he would like sweat through his shirt. And like he'd either have to change or... You know, and he was like, this is stupid. It's like a 15 minute bike ride. Mm. But you know, the bridges are just high enough in New York Mm. that if you bike across them on a regular non-electric bike, Mm. you're gonna sweat, you know? So we met, we were like looking at the same materials. We were like trying to solve the same problem. So that was like the the ignition right there. Like there were ideas that I had spent a couple of years building. I had prototype pants. I had like a logo, all this different things. But as soon as I met Tyler... A partner like uh, kind of that that was the ignition and within like a couple months we had a company and like a website and, and we were up and running
0: and it just took off
1: yeah i mean it was we again we were like also really early to uh to direct the consumer you know right. th- there wasn't even a term at the time but i had mm. built these pants and i was like oh i gotta figure out the math you know mm. and I sat down and they were like, oh, these pants are going to be like 600 bucks if I sell them to Barneys, right? Right. And I had never bought $600 pants that didn't come with a sport coat on top, you know? Mm. And so.
0: And that's because there are more layers that are adding their own margin.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. Their wholesale, you know, you're wholesaling to a retailer and they're marking it up, you know, almost three X. Right. Right. So I was like, what happens you know i knew how to more about making websites than making clothes right so it was mm-hmm. like what happens if we put it online mm-hmm. and i again like i wasn't the first there were a couple other sort of predecessors out there there was a company called finisterre it's still around it's like a cold water surfing company in cornwall england hmm. so that was like my main reference they were kind of doing similar stuff and yeah, I was like, let's do it. Like, let's just put these things online and, and see what happens because we can bring the price down dramatically. And that was sort of a false promise. But like a lot of people did it. Like the early wave of D2C like came right after us and like was built around this exact same premise, right. like cut out the middleman, right? And go online and you can bring the price down. And the reason why I say it's a false premise is because what people learned really quickly is that when you're online, nobody just walks into your store right? So, and again, these are terms that didn't exist when we started, but like the customer acquisition cost, right, Right. is quite high. And so, like, if you start a direct-to-consumer brand now, today, like, the cost of buying the customer is basically the same as, like, what Barney's was marking it up back then, right? Like, those differences have collapsed for the most part. Not 100%, but but almost 100%. But we were early, so we got, like, the early adopters buy, right? You can't be too early, right? So it was the right place, right time, right? Mm-hmm. We were able to put things up and, and customer acquisition costs, like maybe somewhere, someplace people were using the term, but I had never heard of it for years. Like we didn't think about it for years. We just put things online and talked to people, and we realized really quickly, like, and again, this is also something that's changed dramatically, is like there were all these blogs out there back then, and they were thirsty for content, Mm. right? It was like a new thing that like they realized that like if they put up 12 posts a day or something, like a hype beast or whatever, like that would drive the traffic, right? And nobody was pitching them, right? They didn't have 12 pieces of content. It's insane now, right? Like Mm. piece probably gets like 12,000 like Mm. inbound email requests every day, right? For different brands pitching them with different stuff, right? But at that time we were just like, oh, if we take good photos, make interesting content, like people talk about us, people put us out there. Mm. So again, it was like, we were lucky, we're early and we, you know, it was like, It was literally early to digital photography, like the first photo shoots we did ourselves, right? And the digital cameras were just good enough that like we could pull it off and like make good enough photos. Like we were like three or four years earlier, like we was, you know, literally would have needed to have a different camera set up and then it would be a whole different story.
0: Hmm. Were these people in New York that were buying them or were they all over? Yeah, I mean, New York is
1: still our biggest market, but it's not like dramatically the biggest market. It was all over the world. In fact, early on, like the percentage of international customers was like really high. And there's still a lot of international customers, but the percentage goes down every year because like the people willing to take that leap, you know, it's expensive over, you know, like you got to go through customs. It's a risk. Like some places delivery is good, some places it sucks. So. We still sell a lot internationally, but like as a percentage of our business, it gets smaller every year. The absolute
0: number grows. So Right, right. It's curious to me because it feels like so much of the DNA of the company was New York oriented, or at least like the inspiration. But it seems like that's translated beyond.
1: Well, I mean, New York's something that's pretty sellable. Yeah. The world, I mean, I wouldn't say the world over, like there's obviously a lot of people that dislike it, but um, it's something that, you know, people can latch onto that. And is it mostly
0: people in cities?
1: Yeah, oh, it's very urban. There's no question. It's not 100%, obviously. And like our stuff is, you know, it's interesting because we make really technical clothing on certain levels. So some of it's better for hiking than like traditional hiking gear or things like that. So there are like rural use cases and whatnot. But for the most part, it's, you know, we're selling in cities all over the world.
0: Hmm. I think one of the... uh the things that's special about outliers like the community so for those who don't know there's a very active reddit or subreddit for the outlier community and a discord too and i'm not on the discord oh the discord's where the energy's at really yeah well there's a lot of energy on the reddit i feel like it's does it get crazy on the discord
1: yeah i mean the discord's just you know it's a much faster paced environment than than the reddit but it's you know generally feels healthier although it's like you know it's you know there's a a cycle i've I've been through a lot of like watching communities like rise and fall online and something actually an interest of mine right mm. so um the very not the first but the first one I really saw a full cycle was this design community around the turn of the century two thousand where um' we're called dreamless mm. and it was just all sort of online graphic designers and like there were just like some really serious kind of threads going on and then there were like these like chaotic like just full-on like playing around you know like early like proto meme type behavior and stuff like that and then the owner artist named uh, Joshua Davis who's still quite active mm. um, in digital space but he would like get pissed off and like burn the place down every once in a while, like, and there would be these, like, sort of, like, Bacchanals where, like, mm. literally, like, the users would, like, destroy the community and then it would, wow. like, be reborn and then eventually shut it down. So, that was a really interesting experience, like, it made me really interested in, like, online communities, right? And so, that's part of, like, how we, we grew the very first Year or two, we was like kind of bike commuting or not even commuting, like fixed gear. There was like a New York fixed gear forum that was kind of like where we kind of emerged from in a certain way. And then Reddit was wild accident. But again, like I had been thinking about communities for a long time, so it's not totally an accident. So it's interesting, like somebody, our first exposure to Reddit was kind of like a fake out, like somebody, like a friend of a friend, we didn't even really know this guy, Just was like trying to prove to somebody like that he could like get something onto the front of Reddit when it was like Reddit was big, but still like, you know, small compared to what it is now. And so he got a pair of our shorts, you know, with like, you know, the right keywords or whatever headline. He got it to the top of Reddit, like front page of Reddit. And it drove insane amounts of traffic, but the traffic was worthless. Like hmm. the average, t- people would stay for, I, I forgot what it was, like eight seconds, 12 seconds or something. So it was like, oh, all this traffic showed up and then just left. There was no joke, right? He like kind of had the the clickbait, but he didn't have the deliverable. He didn't right. have like the, the joke at the end, right? And so people would show up on our site and be like, this is not funny, bye, right? But it woke us up. We're like, oh, this is crazy traffic. It was worthless traffic, but whatever. And then like, the clothing side of Reddit started emerging and we started seeing all this traffic like a year or two later. And we're like, wow, this is a lot of traffic. Where is it coming from? And you'd be like some Reddit thread and then you'd like dig down like 300 comments and be like, this is coming from this buried comment and it's driving like tons of people to our website. This is powerful. So we started like engaging. And one of the things we learned really, really early on is that like the, the tenor of the conversation changes dramatically when you enter it. It's like people talking behind your back versus people talking to you, right? So, and we saw that really quickly. We'd be like, oh, if we get in here and engage with people, like the tone changes. And so we're like, this is powerful. Let's play with it. And so we were like, what happens if we start our own Reddit? And we did. I think it's still called like an experimental space It was yeah. just like us playing around. We're like, what happens? Let's yeah. see. And boom, like, it was like, oh, all of a sudden we have this like community and we're active in it, right? So it's like, you can't just start a community and leave it, right? You have to like, you know, build mm-hmm. it, right? So there was like some fortuitous like coming together and then we stayed around and we're like, all right, we're going to like provide content for this Reddit.
0: Mm. Do you think that there are certain categories that lend themselves towards these kinds of communities more than others
1: i mean that's hard to say i would i mean I, as a blanket answer i'd say no yeah i think that people can nerd out about anything yeah but obviously like they have different structures and different things you know like there's other reddits and again we were like one of the first clothing brands that had its own reddit because we started our own right and then other mm. people started ones and like you know like supreme has a giant reddit they didn't start it Hmm. but the tenor is so different Mm. than ours right because it's like you know independent of the brand and it's just a different scale and it's a different mindset right these are people like trying to flip products or like you know collecting in certain ways so you know what works for different brands like shifts right so there's a lot of discords too right so certain brands like the discords and there's less than reddits right but you know, certain brands will have discords, whereas other brands like the discourse might stay on uh, Instagram comments or something, right? Mm. Different mediums work differently for different kind of discussions, right? So, the more visual it is, obviously, the more likely it's going to be on a place like Instagram or like Mm. Pinterest, right? Whereas the more textural, right? And that was one of the interesting things when we started is, you know, we make technical clothing. So, like, you know, I, one of the things I noticed when I was buying clothes is I love to like, I would read the tags, you know, like, and there used to be like, it's less common now, but like big Gore-Tex tag or right. whatever. Right. And I would be like, I would actually read it. I wouldn't just like tear it off. I would like sit there and read it. And so it's like, you know, we try and make like a, a layer of, of textual information right. about our clothes. Right. And so that, immediately puts it like into a Reddit zone because Reddit is pure text. There's almost no images there, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. links to images, but like it's basically a textual medium and we're making clothes, but we're also providing a text layer that Mm -hmm. goes with the clothes. So that combination works on Reddit better than, you know, a brand that's like entire, you know, mode of operation is creating better prints or something, right? Mm.
0: Yeah, it's almost like there's a liner notes layer. Yeah, Exactly. To, to the gear and even on your website it's quite editorial in a way. And and you've got that email newsletter that you send out. Is it once a week? Yeah. Uh, I
1: mean, it varies, but yeah, we're, we're roughly, yeah, probably average one a week,
0: but there's a lot of storytelling happening in that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the email like is, you know, designed like literally like it has a, a tone. I write the email, right. And it's, you do, I do. Yeah. It's still, like, still, it's like the one thing I have a hard time delegating is the um, copywriting.
0: Do you write the copy on the site? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, like the, you know, I have a particular style I like. And, um, you know, I, it's, it's tricky, you know, like to delegate things is, is hard sometimes. And sometimes it's really easy. If you hate <laughs> doing it, it's easy to do it. Right. But the copy, I just haven't, every time I try to do it, I'm just like end up editing it so much, I might as well have written it in the first part, you know, so.
0: When you write, is it just you? Is that your natural way of writing, or are you embodying like a, a brand that's that's sort of somewhere? I mean, distinct?
1: it's me. I mean, there's th- that line is pretty thin <laughs> between like yeah, yeah. me and my brand. I guess so. Um, it's it's natural, but it is like a it's a formula, right? It's like designed like a letter. Like I basically talk about the weather every huh. every time, you know, and that's like a traditional, like uh, you know, it's, I think it's like a Japanese formula like but you know i'd seen it somewhere and it, but it's it's pretty like universal in certain what's ways the formula?
0: so you talk about the weather
1: yeah it's i mean that's pretty much it like it's an intro you talk about the weather and then i dive oh, into whatever right yeah in. you know it's just like related to new york but it's like you know that that first couple lines are are a formula and then you know what's interesting about formulas is that they give you a space to like try and flip mm. the formula too it's always written in the first person and it goes out there and yeah we're just kind of Trying to send you a letter from New York about what's going on, which includes the new products that we mm-hmm. we just. Yeah,
0: it's interesting how how Central New York is to the brand in that way. I'd be curious, like, when you have this this community, I can imagine like you guys are you're pushing the envelope constantly, but you have a community that might not be traveling as quickly or in the same direction because people joined at different points in the journey. How do you? deal with that? How do you deal with a community that can sometimes be passionate and unruly and and resistant to change?
1: I mean, I wish I had a really easy answer for this one. No, it's, that's a challenge. And, you know, we have to keep pushing, but our basic formula is that when we have a successful product, we want to just keep making it, right? And so as long as it sells, like, then we can just keep making the same things and, you know, do new colors or like every once in a while we tweak it. But once you have like get like a product to kind of like, it's like iconic, like kind of locked in space, like a stable space where it's like, there's nothing really obvious to improve, right? We just let it run. And it's great when you have that. The really tricky thing that's painful is when we have products that aren't actually successful, but have like deep. Fan bases—that's mm. where it gets brutal because it's like, you know, there's certain products that would just sit on our site and we'd sell some of them, but they were not profitable. <laughs> is there an not example
0: a, of one that's like
1: a, the, the iconic one is the this something we call the sixty thirty chinos? Okay. And my joke now is that the name sixty thirty is the year that we're going to bring them back. <laughs> 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 but people love these things, and they were like. You know, it was an amazing fabric that came from the equestrian world that was a combination. It was cotton-rich, like 60% cotton, 30% nylon, which added durability and like 10% elastic, right? And it's a reference to something called sixty forty cloth, which is like an iconic, like 1970s kind of outdoor fabric, right? It was just 60% nylon and 40% cotton, and this added the stretch, And so you had this like really durable Chino with a lot of stretch, super comfortable, had a water repellent treatment. So it stayed clean, really, really nice pan, but really expensive, right? Making this stuff is super expensive and it sold well, but it like never quite got that like fully geared up and and lift off, right? And so we stopped making it. And then we'd like bring it back because people would complain and then it would sell well like the first week and then sales would plummet, right? And it was like, so there's like this really passionate base that think it's the best stretch Chino ever made or whatever, which might be true. But the problem is that it's super expensive and there's lots of substitutes now. Like mm-hmm. lots of brands like came in and copied this exact product and, you know, maybe didn't get 100% of the way there, but they got, you know, 90 of the way there at like half the cost, a quarter of the cost, you know? So like, it's just not a sustainable product anymore, but at the same time, yeah, maybe it was better than anything that, that came after it. Mm. Certainly in certain people's minds it is, but we just have to leave it behind, you know? And people complain about it to this day. Mm -hmm. Like every few months, like somebody will show up on the Reddit and complain about it. Be like, how do I replace it? And yeah, there's no exact replacement, but you can go buy Dockers for like 60 bucks that are like 90% there, you know? Wow. Instead of us trying to sell it for 300 bucks. But I wish I could make these people happy because it was a great product and they have a point, right? But, but that you know, you can't fight economics like forever. Yeah. You can like pick your little battles and like force it. But so the most part, we just like, you know, we try and make things as long as they're profitable, maybe a little bit longer. And then we try and make new things. Like that's, what's exciting to me is like creating Mm -hmm. new stuff. So you just can't get too bogged down in it. Even if people get really loud on Reddit about it.
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the cool things about you and what you built is it's kind of like this, you guys are real business, right? Like, and you never raise capital outside capital, as far as I know, but there's also this kind of like progressivism to it. And, you know, I think it flies in the face of a lot of the like conventional wisdom about the political spectrum, actually. How do you think about this kind of like new school capitalism or or the kind of capitalism that you, you do? For me, like, I mean,
1: I think what separates like how I approach this stuff from a lot of people is that I really try and separate markets from capital mm. in like how I look at things. And, you know, this is an oversimplification, but I'm basically like, Pro markets, mm. and, uh, in a plural, like, uh, mm. not in a singular, and anti-capital. Mm. And again, this is oversimplification, yeah, but, yeah. like, to me, like, I think markets are amazing. Yeah. And when I talk about that, I'm like, it's literally, like, going to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul or something. I love yeah. that energy, and I love seeing, like, the dynamics, mm. and I love, like, how things are exchanging, right? And they're healthy and vibrant, and, like, new ideas come from these environments. Yeah. And they're super exciting. A market's just a place of exchange, and, yeah. right? And I, I love that dynamic and I fully embrace it. Like, so we're part of a global market, right? We're like yeah. sourcing things from all over the world. I travel around the world trying to find new materials. We make things all over the world and then we sell things all over the world. But capital is very different, right? And- mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times when people talk about capitalism, right, They it's basically a conglomeration. It's like, oh, capital plus markets together. Mm. But the fact is that they're often in tension with each other, They're often fighting with each other. Like capital, you know, you'll have big capitalists out there talking about free markets, but that's only like, when, they, when a capitalist talks about free markets, that's because they're locked out of something. Mm. And so they want it to be free. They want it to be open for them. Mm. But as soon as they're in the market, like they're going to be looking for like, you know, a way to control the market in a certain way because they make mm. more profit that way, mm. right? So, you know, capital is always looking for the highest return. Mm. And if you think about capital as like kind of like a phase change operation, there's different stages of it. And so at the early stages, right, it can be like super productive, right? Like money going into building industry, right? Or creating new technologies or opening up new spaces of possibility, right? And so early stage capital like that is not that problematic. But if you look at how it operates, as soon as it gets like big and ossified, it gets pretty toxic.
0: Mm.
1: And so, you know, we've never raised outside capital. We're basically like not a capital free entity like me and Tyler, my partner, put in a very small amount of money as capital to start this thing. But we're bootstrapped from there. And it gives us a lot of freedom in how we can operate. Because nobody's over our shoulder asking us for returns, mm. right? And when everything's smooth and operating, like, you know, if you raise money, taking capital, like, it can be great, right? Like, everything's in line, right? Like, you have somebody who puts in money and you have something that you want to make. And then together, like, you're generating something that people want to buy. And like, now you have a, like a really healthy running machine, right? The problem with that sort of structure is that it, it never runs straight forever, right? There's always going to be like, you know, periods of economic stress, like thing, you know, times when, when things go south and like, you know, it could be personal. It might Like if you raise money from a wealthy friend and all of a sudden like something happens and they're no longer wealthy, like they're going to deal with you differently. Right. Cause like what might've been like a fun, like, Oh, here's some money to do something like becomes like, Oh man, I need that Mm -hmm. money back. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and the same thing, like when you raise money from a venture capital firm, right. And they just had a huge IPO with something else. They're like, Oh yeah, we got free money. Right. Mm. And then they've had a couple bad years and they're, people who invested in them are like, where's our returns, right? All of a sudden, they're going to start looking at things differently mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, so capital is like kind of a, a dangerous thing, right? Where it can work really well at certain phases, and then it can turn against you and come like quite problematic. Particularly when like you have giant firms that are kind of run their course and like need to figure out how to like increase profits even Mm -hmm. though like there's no real obvious healthy way to increase profits Mm -hmm. and so then they start looking at unhealthy ways to increase profits and Mm -hmm. that's
2: sort of where you get the darker side of things going in there imagine listening to a podcast and not hearing an ad for a website builder you'd be like what kind of podcast is this we know you need your fix and we're not going to deprive you of that at Universe, we believe websites are the main event, so of course we'd sandwich one in between our show. Here's the deal. Websites are dope, everyone needs one, and they can actually be fun to build and have some personality behind them. This is the part of the ad where I rattle off a list of all the things our website building product can do for you in hopes that you choose Universe over the competition. Create sites, build stores, analytics, email shipping, off from your phone feels like playing with Legos, all that good stuff. We got it. I mean, you can make sites so good you'll shit yourself, but that's just brass tacks. At Universe, a website is so much more than just something you hear about on a podcast commercial. It's an extension of self. It's a way to interact creatively with the digital world. And we're hell-bent on helping the internet live up to its full potential. A more eclectic, more electric place. Because the internet shouldn't just be a space for squares. Grab a domain like .xyz and show those .com boomers what the internet's all about. Head to Universe. That's Univer.se, but the dot is silent. Punch those puppies into the App Store, my friend, and we'll see you out there.
0: Well, I like this uncoupling of markets and capitalism. I think that's really right. There's also different kinds of capital, right? Like, you haven't taken outside capital, but you've created capital. I mean, Outlier has capital now. And, you know, you guys, I would imagine, have thus built it and you can use it. That's why you could be more ambitious in the things that you create because you've got that. So I guess like how much of what you're saying is specifically around like outside capital versus just the nature of capital itself?
1: You know, there's different definitions of capital out there. It's a, it's a fuzzy yeah. term, right? So you can throw it around. You know, the simplest one to look at is is simply like capital is money that is invested with the purpose of returning more Mm. money right and that's from marx right it's like um you know money into commodities into money prime right and from that standpoint i like that definition it's really interesting to me because it's it's like a virtual distinction between capital and money but it's very real right Mm. like Mm. Why? Why is one piece of money this money and one you know one piece mm-hmm. capital, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no actual physical mm-hmm. distinction. They're all just dollars mm-hmm. or pounds or whatever, right? Euros. But as soon as you have this psychological demand on there, right? Like this is money mm-hmm. with a purpose uh, of returning more money. That's sort of the, the distinction. Mm-hmm. So when we reinvest our profits, like in some ways it's capital, but it's not actually like our goal is not to make more money by investing in it, it's to make more products. And mm-hmm. the money is like something that we need to make in order mm-hmm. to do that, right? So yeah. like, there's like, uh, Tim O'Reilly has this sort of metaphor that he talks about, like where you look at like, you know, money, if you look at like a, building a company as like a road trip, right? Money's like the gas that you gotta put 100%. in the engine, right? And so, but the point of the road trip is not to like no. put as much gas into the <laughs> engine as possible, right? And have it spill out onto the road or whatever, right? It's like the point of the, you know, you can't run out of gas. You run out of gas, like, I mean, you can run out of gas once and have an adventure, but like you can't just completely run out of gas, right? You want to do a road trip, you got to keep putting gas into that car to yeah. figure out where that comes from. And so it's the same thing. Like the point of the journey is to of the company is to build really interesting products and like, you know, have fun and like, you know, provide people's livelihoods, right? And that takes money, right? But we never think about it as like, oh, we need to make more money Mm. because for the sake of it.
0: It's like there's that book, Finite and Infinite Games by James Carson, basically breaks down this idea that there's really two kinds of games. There are finite games where the purpose is to win and winning means that the other person loses. Uh, And then there are infinite games where the purpose is to keep playing. And I I think of, you know, business in the way that you're describing it as an an infinite game. You want to keep playing the game.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's the same thing in game theory too, right? Like really basic game theory. Like people use these like, you know, sort of basic setups that like the weird early game theorists were kind of like using to like justify nuclear war and weird shit. But as soon as like they started like making trying to like synchronize the game theory so that it was not just one game, but like multiple games, all of a sudden like Mm. cooperation became like a much more viable strategy. In fact, like probably the winning strategy, right? Mm. So if it's like your prisoner's dilemma, right? is a classic Mm. like game theory thing. And if you play it once, like Mm. it kind of rewards you for being like the asshole, like being uncooperative, right? But if you play it like over and over and over again, like it rewards you for like, cooperating with people because it
0: becomes an iterated game
1: yeah exactly and that's the whole thing is that we're in a a networked world there's eight billion people Mm. and we're connected to all of them in some way right Mm. some of them quite distantly right but you know a lot of them very very intimately whether we like live with them or work with them or live next to them or cross them on the street right or you know so buy something from them, right? There's a huge chain of connecting us. Like, you know, and if I buy a fabric from Japan, right? There's like workers in Japan that are running those machines and dyeing the fabric, right? And then the yarns might be coming from, you know, two or three other places and there's workers there and they have families, right? So these networks spread out, like, you know, throughout the whole world, we're all kind of in this together.
0: Yeah. Why do you think, so, you know, we've had markets... Forever in human history, or at least for the last 10,000 years. And they're ancient. Like in the Bible, there's markets and things like this. But the explosion we've seen in quality of life, let's say, or, or GDP per capita, has really happened over the past like 150 years. I'm curious how you think about that. Because to me, like, markets without capitalism feels like this sort of pre industrial revolution moment.
1: I think you know, it's interesting like that like the more like contemporary like ideas around capitalism actually show that it's been around for thousands of years too. Mm. And it has different phases, right? Mm. It kind of like has these big moments, right? So if you like look at like ancient Sumeria, like there's periods of that history where like there was pretty much functional capitalism happening at that, those periods too. And there's also like relatively defined arcs where like this sort of like early phase, like capitalism, like provokes a lot of growth and then like it can cap out and stagnate. Mm. There's, you know, some theorizing around like sort of a, a shift where there's a point where like you know, investing in something really physical and real is Mm. like the best way to get a return. Mm. And then at a certain point, like those returns kind of start diminishing and, but there's a lot of money circulating. Mm. And that's where you get the kind of like speculative level where it's like, there's more money in real estate or in like selling derivatives, right? Like, and you kind of that's where the house of cards starts to like get built. And then like things kind of stagnate because nobody's actually investing in building real things
0: anymore. I agree with that. And I'm not sure like that sort of financialization of the economy. I'm not sure if we're at a moment where that's about to go supernova, where it's all at the financial layer, or if it's actually swinging back towards the real world. What, What do you think?
1: I mean, it's like what, what I think is interesting is how global it is, right? So, you kind of have different f- shifts throughout the world. And so, if you look at, like, the UK right now, like, they look like they're in a pretty economically stagnant yeah. zone, right? Because they really, really pushed, like, to, like, send everything offshore, right. right? And sort of virtualize everything. And they pushed it super hard and they made lots of profits and they're kind of a hollow shell. Yeah. Right. And it's not like there's no industry left there. There's still some fabric you can buy from the UK and they still make cars. Right. And they still
0: have. But even like Land Rovers are mostly made in Slovenia, you know, like. Yeah.
1: Land Rover's a Indian company. Yeah, right. Yeah. Taha. Right. No, they pushed really, really hard to like offshore everything and extract a lot of money in the short term. Right. And it's interesting because that strategy and short term isn't like a, a day, right? It's like years in this kind of scheme, right? And it's super profitable, like they you know, high quality of life and whatnot. But, it, you know, in the end, like how sustainable is it? Can you have like a pure financial economy, right? Mm. And in the end, it seems unlikely that it's fully sustainable because at the end of the day, people are going to, you know, who own the means of production, like, are going to be like, well, actually, we don't need your financing anymore. Right. Like, we have our own, right? We can build our own layers of this stuff. And then and then there's nothing left, right? So, but it's tricky because it, there's so many layers and they're interoperating on so many different levels. And, you know, an economy like the U.S. is much more industrial than you might think, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels on certain levels like it's all just tech and, you know, finance, but the fact is that there's still tons of factories and tons of manufacturing and tons of things happening. So I think the tricky thing is, is, is the balance, right? Mm. It's like, how do you, you know, it's like the right mix of nutrients that are Mm. going into your body. I think about this in terms of food now, actually, honestly, Mm. because it's like, you know, like when we grew up, like, I don't remember from school, they give you like this food pyramid or something that, that seems like Utterly like when you read about food these days, like the food pyramid seems like this like antiquated, yeah. like totally wrong, made up thing. Yeah. And there were certain aspects of it that literally were like kind of pushed by right. certain industries. Yeah. It was like dairy industry was like the milk yeah. section's not big enough, <laughs> yeah. like make that bigger on the pyramid yeah. or whatever, right? But I think what's interesting about it, that whole thinking like that differs from the way like people think about food a lot nowadays is it was based on being balanced. Mm-hmm. And even if there was like certain unbalances that might've been forced in there or whatnot, it was actually about, oh, let's make a balanced diet. Right. You eat, like oh, some of this and some of that right. and like bring it all together in like a healthy whole. Whereas like now you have like food trends that are like eat nothing but raw eggs, yeah. right? And they might like produce short-term results, mm. right? Cause you're doing weird body hacks mm. and nutrient hacks and whatnot, but they don't like create a healthy, sustainable, mm-hmm. like- way to live your life every day for like, you know, decades, right?
0: So. That's cool. I mean, that's, you know, I never really thought of the food pyramid as actually like a way of mainstreaming nuance, right? Because what we're talking about is I feel like we're stuck in a culture right now that lacks nuance and that's, you know, we'll call it because of technology or whatever, but like everything becomes black or white. And even something like the food pyramid, which was so crude and wrong in some ways, at least it was a structure, a framework that had inherent nuance
1: yeah yeah it had it like there's a lot of flexibility in it right and, it, and it's a guide to sort of like help you know that like oh you're you're not you're out of balance right as mm-hmm. opposed to like you know right now it's like oh yeah a lot of the food structures that like kind of get pushed are like about like pushing you to like this dynamic edge right it's like oh you want to be like zero percent body fat like eat nothing but raw eggs and meat right or like you have like oh, vegan, right? There's another side to it, right? Where you're like drawing these forced lines and there's mm. certain ethics to why they're doing it, obviously. But like, you're also kind of cutting out like huge amounts of nutrients. Mm. So yeah, I think it's, you know, the key thing is like, how do you how do you keep things in balance? Like think about that and like figuring out when sometimes you want to go to the edge, right? When do you want to be at mm. maximum performance? Yeah. Push things to a limit. When do you want to pull back and be like, oh no, let's like relax. Let's like, you know, take a day off, let's like mm. bring in a different type of nutrient right mm. like how do you how do you keep things moving healthily right?
0: And you're saying like when we think about the economy, we could imagine that kind of structure where you have some financial parts, but you know it's not all that
1: yeah, exactly. it's like you if you go to a pure financial economy like you know there's a theory you could be like, yeah, we're just the financiers and that's all we oh, do. Right. It's like we put money to work and that's the entire country, right. And we're a super rich country, right? And that's kind of like what the UK, an exaggerated version of what the UK tried to do, right? Yeah. And part of that was like, let's take all our factory assets and move them to countries where the labor is cheaper, right? Yeah. And so now you have a, I mean, like very obvious like dynamic imbalance all of a sudden, right? You have like a country where like labor is really high and a country where labor is really low and like, Moving some of like the mm. demand to the to you know the low cost labor country helps even it out a little bit, but by extracting huge amounts of profits from the top, it pushes it the other way. Yeah. In, in a financialized country, right? So and then you have like people who want to get to the rich country because that's where the money is, mm. right? And then you have people who are in the rich country like being like, Let's drop the gates because I mm. want to like, you know, sit on this money, right? Mm. And it doesn't seem like the healthiest balance to me. It's like, you need to figure out how to like circulate it a little bit more and like have more of that cash flowing to more people, right? On a worldwide level and also inside the country,
0: right? So. So, I mean, I think on that note, like I'm curious how you think about production and you know, how you guys make your clothes.
1: I mean, we make them in factories. It's pretty straightforward. But it's interesting. We still make a lot of stuff in New York. A lot, I shouldn't say a lot, in terms of like, you know, like the new small production stuff gets made in New York. You can't make big scale Mm. stuff in New York anymore. So, you know, we start, we were born in the New York Garment District. We still do small runs in the New York Garment District. So we do a lot of like what we call experiments. Like we're just playing around, testing new ideas out. And that's generally done through New York. And then th- there's certain things that we can scale to a certain extent in New York. But for the most part, like, you know, we outgrow Manhattan pretty quickly. Hmm. And these are like very like flexible, but chaotic and disorganized factories, essentially hmm. like very creative spaces, but like they're not big and they're not organized the way you can when you have a lot of space for a factory. Right. So the next stage is to move it elsewhere, which usually in our case, we mostly moved stuff to Portugal Hmm. and Thailand. Hmm. And those are our two favorite places right now because they're kind of like in the sweet spot where like the labor conditions are good, the quality is high, the price is good. These sweet spots don't stay Hmm. sweet forever, right? So it's kind of crazy. Like um, we buy textiles from Switzerland, like one of our really early partners, Shoulder Textile, They turned 150 a few years ago. So Mm -hmm. I went to this whole party they did in Switzerland and their founder wasn't Swiss. Their founder was German Hmm. and he moved to Switzerland for cheap labor. Wow. It like literally, it was like Switzerland (laughs) was like where the labor was cheap (laughs) and like crazy. But if you think about it, like Made in Italy used to be cheap labor, Made in Japan used to be cheap labor, right? So you know, we see, like, Portugal and Thailand as being, like, in that sweet spot right now. Yeah. Where you can get, like, a really good value, but, like, people are getting paid well and getting mm. treated right, and um, the quality's really high. Mm. So that's where we're at, and, and it'll shift. Hopefully, you know, like, like, it's not great as a business, but, like, hopefully it gets to a point where made in Portugal is, like, expensive, mm. like made in Italy is expensive, mm. and certain things you know will still get made there but like there'll be someplace else that like is like using that ramp right and so i don't want to say it's like a universal tendency but like if you look at new york city new york city garment district like the garment industry was always like a ramp up for different cultures and communities right it started or initially it was super jewish right it started in the lower east side right people like sewing you know and it's You know, the reason New York was the center of the garment industry was because it's where Singer Sewing Machines was Mm. based. And Singer was like a, yeah, Singer was a conglomerate of like a bunch of different sewing machine patents, right? And the the Singer name, like the, you know, he was just one of like a bunch of inventors, but he happened to be like a former actor who was like better at selling these things than other people. But yeah, like- People were like, oh, you could buy a sewing machine and then you could start a factory in your
0: house, literally.
1: Wow. You know, the personal
0: sewing machine, like the personal computer.
1: Yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. It was like the, you know, this new technology that you can invest in that could like open up the possibility space, right? You could sew garments like 10 times faster, 100 times faster, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. right? If you go to the garment district now, there's like still a few. Jewish factory owners or like fabric store owners Mm. left but it's it's not a Jewish place at all right it's like Chinese and Dominican and Korean and these are all cultures that like came into New York Mm. and found the garment industry as a as a ramp Mm. to grow up and like if you go to a factory now like you'll see a lot of like 50 year old Chinese ladies sewing stuff but they're daughters and sons are not working in the garment right, industry right, you know they're right, like right. doctors and lawyers and mm, like yeah. so when it works like
0: that it's fantastic
1: you know and so that's like kind of the and that's whole,
0: happening for countries too is what you're saying
1: oh yeah totally I mean Japan right was cheap labor yeah. in a certain point you know like Sony changed it I think right but like if you talk to people of a certain age like like made in Japan in 1960 was cheap Right. Mm. And now it's like the total opposite. We're yeah. like, oh, Japanese clothing, like it's right. super expensive, fetishized thing. Right. And same with Italy, same thing. But it's tricky on a country level, like how how far it goes. Like it's hard to say. Right. Mm. But there's certain indications it's happening in China. Right. Yeah. And certain, but again, these are giant. China in particular is gigantic. So right. it's hard to
0: say 100%
1: if this like dynamic is complete or not.
0: Yeah. Do you think that? will have robots making clothes anytime soon?
1: Uh, that's a really, really tough question. Yeah, People are obviously trying to do it. It's weirdly hard. It's insanely hard. And it's interesting because I go to this trade fair. You know, it's called Tech Textile, Tech, one of my favorite fairs. It only happens every two years in Frankfurt. There's one in the U.S. that's like much smaller. Um, that happens every year. But the, the Frankfurt one is every two years. It's actually technically a sister fair. I go to Tech Textile to buy textiles, but there's this one called Text Process. That they basically mm. hold them together and they always have the new machines there. So I always walk through and see. Mm. And they've been presenting robot type stuff for since I've been going. But what's interesting is that the robots actually get less and less ambitious every time I go. Huh. Every two years, there'll be like the new robot sewing machine and it does less than the one before huh. and they never work. There's always just technicians hanging around, wow. like trying to fix them, and it's crazy. But I, you know, in theory, it's like one of those things that that should be solvable with brute force. Like the reason it's so hard is that when a human is putting fabric through a sewing machine, they're making like tons of micro adjustments. Yeah. Fabric is like a very dynamic, you know, yeah. thing. It's constantly moving and shifting, yeah. and the human hand and eye is capable of making these like millions and millions of like kind of micro adjustments to create a straight line. And when you have a machine trying to do it, like A, like the reflexes aren't necessarily there and the processing's intense. It's like tracking the fabric and like watching it shift and like trying to stabilize it. And so those machines, like, it's like in theory a solvable problem, but nobody knows when. It's like at some point, like in theory, they crack through to the other side and like it becomes totally solvable. But I haven't seen it work yet. And then there's another approach I saw that like I didn't, I haven't read why it disappeared, but it clearly failed. But where they were kind of doing the opposite, where they were like coating the fabric with like a stiff substrate, so it become oh, more like cardboard. And then it it was a really crazy setup. It was like an air hockey table. Huh. It would like shoot the things across. Like they were huh. controlling like where the air jets were, and it would like shoot yeah. the stuff like from. From like machine to machine on this big table, and like in theory, make this whole setup. And then in, Adidas invested like a whole bunch, and they had this whole press release. Like I don't know, maybe less than ten years ago, they're like, "We're going to build this factory of the future in like Arkansas or someplace, and like we're going to make a million t-shirts a year here, and like using this technology." And then, and then they just kind of like, you know, you know, that was a loud press release, and they had the quiet press release where like we're closing this factory, yeah. right? So I don't know what happened exactly. I haven't seen like the the tell all, but um, it's a challenge. It's a super challenge, and it's really crazy. Like you know, there's massive amounts of clothes sold every year, like billions of clothes made every year, yeah. and every single one of them, except for socks, basically, and sweaters, I guess, to a certain extent, mm. but. Everything else is like sewn by humans. By hand, yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes they're cut by machines, sometimes yeah. they're cut by humans, but they're all just sewn together. Crazy. The socks are wild. The socks pretty much come out of the machine like one shot. Wow. Is it like a knitting machine? Yeah, it's a knitting machine. It's really crazy because there's another fair that's every four years that I go to that or that those machines are. And, you know, they have all these crazy looms and right, different right. machines. The sock, Manufacturing people, the sock machine people are the only ones that like have like strong, like no camera type security oh, around wow. their stuff. And it's crazy because you look at these machines and like I don't I couldn't make heads or tails about what they're going. Yeah. They're insanely complicated. Wow. But they're like no cameras, like no way. Uh-huh. Like nobody's gonna see the secret of our sock machine.
0: It's interesting because a lot of socks are still made in the US. Or some oh, socks, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it, and that's because um For this exact reason, like, there's no labor. What's interesting is we actually were making socks that people love that we stopped making. I know, I'm very disappointed about that. Yeah, yeah. And um, what's interesting is that the real problem was was not making them in the U.S. The problem was quality control in the U.S.
0: Wow, because that has labor.
1: Has labor. And so it's like the socks would come out perfect. Then there'd be like a hundred of the, whatever was on the machine before our, you know, like totally different right. material or whatever. And we're like, and then we had, to, <laughs> so we just got sick of doing quality control on this stuff. We'd have to do every sock because there might be 50 of the wrong sock in there or like the, mm. you know, 50 that were labeled large when they're really medium, right? Wow. But otherwise, yeah, like socks in the U.S., it's just all you got to do is buy a machine and the only labor is like connecting the yarns to the machine and you turn it on.
0: Huh. So it's worth saying a a lot of fabrics are made by machine, right?
1: Yeah. They're all, the fabrics are all extremely mechanical processes. Like, you know, you need human monitoring it. There's some quality control going on. But yeah, you can have giant factories making fabrics with very few humans in
0: them. Hmm. So it's really just the assembly of pieces of fabric. Yeah, that's the hard part.
1: Yeah, it's like cutting the fabric and then and then sewing it together in a in, in a line that that feels like a straight line. Amazing. Yeah,
0: you know it's uh, it's also one of those things where the pressure is not only that it's technically difficult, but when you have cheap labor available, you're competing with you know cheap labor to make a t-shirt. It's like not expensive to make a t-shirt, so the market forces on building that machine are not as intense as it would be if if there were just, there were no alternative.
1: Yeah, no, that's definitely a, a fair point. It's an interesting challenge. And it employs, you know, there's obviously, like, bad situations, the sweatshops where people are, like, treated really poorly and, like, you need to avoid that. And, you know, that's why we try and stay in countries like Portugal or Thailand where, like, labor standards are higher and we can, you know we visit every single factory we work with and things mm. like that, right? But there's plenty of companies that are chasing the cheapest needle, right? Mm. And and that means pushing into like weird, dubious mm. situations. But hopefully like, you know, again, like, you know, Bangladesh like has a massive garment industry and hopefully like they can take that and build that into a, a healthier economy, mm. right? Like step-by-step step, mm. where the kids grow up and like, you know- somebody sewing is going to put them through college and then they're going to go do something else. Mm.
0: How do you guys find new materials?
1: Uh, I'm always hunting. So it's mostly through trade fairs, Mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like, I like to go all over the world. I mean, COVID like put a hiccup on that, but kind of back in stride, although I haven't been pushing the limits, you know, I'm back back into my regular stride, but like, I always, pre-COVID, I'd always try and go to like one new and different fair a year. So I have certain places I go like to see my suppliers and see mm. what they have that's new, right? So there's fashion side, like a, there's a fair called Premier Vision in Paris I go to twice a year. That's like the high fashion one. And then there's like one in Milan that's like kind of the same thing. Although it's interesting, they've post-COVID, they've kind of split a little bit. They used to be like 90% the same and now they're kind of like regionalized again, which is a little scary. Hmm. Well, Italians don't want to go to France and the French don't want to go to Italy, hmm. which I don't like. <laughs> um, But it is, you know, then there's like the outdoor industry ones, right? So, which I love. And the, the dynamics there are a little weird. The fairs are changing, but like there's always the outdoor industry and like we source tons from that. Yeah, yeah
0: what do you mean by the uh, dynamics being weird?
1: Uh, it's just like, so there used to be a, well, there still is a show called Outdoor Retailer that's mm. kind of like used to be our secret sauce. Mm. Like we used to go to Outdoor Retailer and buy outdoor fabrics and make urban clothing, right? right. That was like the formula right yeah. there. But Outdoor Retailer, you know, it's 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 mostly a trade show for, for retailers for selling like the actual clothes. Huh. But like a third of the show was actually sourcing like the back uh-huh. of it. And then there's been just a lot of like annoying, boring drama with that show. It's not as fun as it used to be. Mm. And a lot of the suppliers just sort of went to a a separate supply only show, which I'm going to go to in a few weeks actually called Mm. Functional Fabric Fair in the U.S. And Mm. there's a European version, same company called Performance Days. So if you want to like find like outdoor industry, technical fabrics, that's where you go. Functional Fabric Days, uh, Functional Fabric Fair in Portland and uh, Performance Days in Munich and so if anybody wants to start competing (laughs) with me, that's that's it, no gatekeeping. (laughs) Just go, find some fabric, and uh, and that's it,
0: right? So you go there, and you're, like, feeling stuff, and you're like, huh, this would be great for a pant?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that was sort of the secret, like, when it was, like, the first days at Outdoor Retailer, when I was going, was, like, I would go to this outdoor fair, and then I would do what's called, like, um, like, the old-school garmentos called, like, shop by hand. Mm. Like, it's very touch-oriented, just, like, touch and feel, and, like, so, like, most people in the like outdoor industry like are shopping by spec you know they're like i need something that like meets this specification this specification and then obviously they're gonna touch it and feel it at some point but um that's not like their instinct i like very much touch oriented it's like how do you how does it feel and then Mm. figure everything else from there Hmm. but then i love to like go to surprising places like hmm. go to you know find something from the equestrian industry or from you know firefighter or hmm. whatever it is right so i'm always looking for new new zones to like explore and sometimes you know if you f- if you go to a, a trade fair that you're unfamiliar with then like 99 percent of it is irrelevant to you but you find one thing that like you wouldn't have found otherwise it's worth it right hmm. so it's a you know panning for gold kind of thing and again, like COVID really like stopped that process, but I think we're at a point where I can get back into it, so.
0: Yeah, what was COVID like for you?
1: I mean, it sucked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was kind of crazy because, you know, like the it was survival at first. You know, we didn't know if, if our warehouse was going to shut down, right? At first, so it was just like, oh, like just optimize for cash, right? And again, we're bootstrapped, right? So we don't have like, you know, there's, there's trade-offs to that. There's a lot of things I love about it, but like, we're not sitting on like, right. like reserves that like somebody gave us like in exchange for equity. Right. So it was just like day by day, like, you know, how do we get as much cash in the bank to like get through this? Cause we didn't know how long it was going to last and how, you know, if we could keep selling things and stuff like that. Mm. So, and then when the factories were reopen and all this kind of stuff. So it it's like piece by piece, but then like, you know, the PPP started happening and stuff and things like stabilized and it was like, oh, well. But, you know, the di- clothing dynamics changed a lot. Like some people were like, oh, your online business, like online sales are up, like it should be right. great. But it was like, no, nah, like, you know, we're a pants business. First and foremost, half of right. our sales are pants, right? And nobody needed pants anymore. Yeah. Like, they're on a Zoom call and <laughs> it's like- <laughs> so that's it like no pants they
0: certainly didn't need outdoor
1: yeah, yeah. no they don't need like t- hard pants yeah. right people yeah. and we didn't make soft pants we made hard pants Yeah. so that part sucked and it, like it really it's still annoying because our number all our projection numbers are like you know we had like and there weren't amazing systems but there were you know real systems in place for like projecting growth like how many pants do we need this month right and those numbers are still just like huh. the, the data's a mess right wow. it's like you can't You're like, the data tells you something, but it's like, that just because of COVID or is that because of- Yeah. Uh, And then there's like the supply chain hiccups after COVID, right? So it's like, we ran out of things because factories are closed, right? And everything's slower now. But at the same time, as soon as like the PPP kicked in, like the sting kind of got taken out of it, right? So it Mm. was like, there's a lot of frustrating, annoying things. And then there was like, oh, here's like, you know, free money from the government. (laughs) to keep people employed literally right you know it is what it is it was it wasn't fun and yeah. we're still like you know things are still not moving at the pace that they were before yeah like the suppliers the supply chain is significantly slower wow. like maybe 50, 50 is probably a good number it's like give it it can be like sometimes things move faster right so it's it's a wide variance but like you know we used to order things like you know, five, six months out. And now we're like, you know, eight, nine wow. months out, which is really annoying. Cause like, you kind of like don't always see, you know, fashion seasonal, right? Clothing seasonal. And like, when you're six months out, you get to see like yeah. all, the, all the sales from the last season before you put the order for the right. next season, right? now we're like kind of in the middle of one season, like trying to order uh-huh. for the next year, right? So Does
0: that make you more conservative?
1: Uh, On certain levels, yeah, definitely.
0: Hmm. So one of the things I noticed, and I don't know how tracked this was to COVID, but you guys you, know, you took a really interesting new direction. You're a menswear company, but your creative director is a transgender woman, and I've also noticed that show up in the work. It's there's an autobiographical component to to the the more runway side of things. Talk to me a little bit about that. And I say this, by the way, as a huge fan of, yeah. of Willie Norris, who's the creative director.
1: You know, um, Willie's yeah. amazing. So it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to, I can't speak too much to it because it's really her story. But, you know, Willie had worked for us for like six, seven years. And so there's two sort of sides to it. Like the really sort of technical thing is like we had basically two essentially design directors up until like a few months before COVID, like beginning in January 2020. It was Willie and this woman, Jasmine Planton, who was amazing. And she got recruited by Nike Hmm. January 2020. And so she left. And they're both like people that we had hired very young, like without much extensive previous experience, like designing and stuff and both super, super talented. One of the things that happened is like when Jasmine left, like instead of hiring like a second, like, like person on the same level, we just like made willie mm. the design director and that had a much more of an impact than i than we realized mm. like we like having that sort of dual two creatives mm. like in charge at equal level mm. was more detrimental than we realized mm. they both were super talented it, but like they both kind of deserved to be the one and right. like have more it's weird, it's not even freedom, it's just more, to, like, more, uh, yeah, it's power, really. Like, more, like, control over the entire domain, right? Yeah. So, like, having Willie in charge of the whole collection had a much bigger impact than we realized. Hmm. And so, you know, let her vision come clearer, right? And then the, uh, the second side of it is, like, she transitioned during COVID, really. So, and that's, like, her journey, so I can't speak yeah. too much to it, but she's quite happy with the path that you know, she took a lot of realizations on her part right to get there right so it's been amazing to watch cuz you know she seems
0: you know she's thriving how do you think about it though from the perspective of the brand and i mean specifically like to me it's like it's really cool that the photo shoots that you guys run now they're like they're gender bending like they're not they're not what I would have expected, but I'd imagine that like you probably get some pushback from the community or whatever it is. And how do you think about that? And how do you, right? Cause I'm curious how you manage a relationship with a creative director for a brand that, you know, you own.
1: So in terms of pushback, we've actually gotten surprisingly little. Mm. And I think it, we're just really up front about who we are. Mm. And... We've always like try and put like a lot of diversity into our images, right? Like we're like New York is core to our brand and like we always want to represent like that melting pot aspect of it. And so we always put that out there and I think that helps, right? You know, every once in a while you see it in the Reddit or something, you're some people who like complain on some level, but it's pretty rare. And so that's cool. And I think it's just like the type of people that we try and attract, Mm. like the image that we put out. In terms of the gender fluidity, right, it's interesting because it actually to, to me like it goes beyond just like working with Willie. I mean she's amazing, but I see a lot of music too. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of like the interesting musicians that are doing interesting stuff that are trans musicians in a lot of ways. So like I love this artist Rose or R Rose, mm-hmm. electronic music. and she's amazing and I think ArCA is a huge example. Yeah. There was Sophie who died, unfortunately. And I think that people that do this sort of like gender transition are just a little more open to like like the power of transformation yeah. in this world. Right. That they they understand that like you what it's like to start in one place that you don't mm. really feel comfortable and move to another place and unlock the totally. potential. You know, another one that's interesting in the same space. I actually just got her most recent book is Mackenzie Wark. Hmm who's uh academic at, at the new school and she has a book on raving. I haven't read it, but you know, it's another interesting space. So I think that there's something about having gone through that little transition experience that opens people up in a way that a lot of people right now are having trouble with, right? We're in an age where progress is problematized, right? Yeah. Uh, for good reason, right? Like, so as you grow up, like, if you look at climate change, right? You, like, literally, like, we're seeing, like, the negative effects of, like, years of progress, right? And our lifespans are still, like, dramatically higher, right? Like, all these things, mm. like, that we we still want to use iPhones. We still want to use antibiotics, right? Like, we we live, like, what is it, 30, 40 years yeah. longer on average than our ancestors did 100 years ago, right? So there's lots of progress out there but we're seeing like all the the downside coming right. and so it makes it hard and i think when you go through something like a gender transition it makes it a little easier to be like to understand that right. like the power of the transformation
0: yeah i mean that resonates to me like i've always been a fan of like transhumanism as just an idea of like transcending the limits of our biology and technology and like the tech industry it comes from that utopian place in so many ways it's about sort of extending our minds and and not being tied to a fixed idea of what we're capable of doing and i think that oftentimes in the discussions about us as people and like the more political aspects it's thought of through this sort of like problematization lens that you talk about it's like oh like a person's born this way or something like that as opposed to saying no like everything's possible and i think that's really interesting i wonder how we shift the zeitgeist more towards an openness in that way. I think what's missing
1: right now, which is easier to say than to do, is like is some sort of like theory of nonlinear progress. Mm. Right. Like so when we talk about progress, we think about it usually in this sort of linear stage, right? Like one mm. step after another. And that's what's problematized right now, right? When you look at, oh, we like put engines in everything and now like the world's getting hotter, right? It's like makes it hard to think about like just linear right. step by step because like we were in this sort of right zone where the the downsides are looking as big as the upsides right mm. so it's like how do you create a, a a non-linear theory of progress where we can look at like how do we how do we sort out the good from the bad how do we like not dive too quickly into mm. things that end up hurting us mm. right like there's sort of like a a history of of rushing into technology a little too fast and then getting like blindsided by the the whiplash, mm. right? And it's tricky. And it's, it's something I, you know, like on a very small scale, try to build into our brand and our process where we experiment small and like try and test things out mm. on small levels before we scale. Mm. But on a larger level, like we don't have those structures like fully built, mm. right? like the way to sandbox things, mm. right? Like, you you know, in coding, right? You can build, like, structures where you can test new ideas that are, like, cut off from, like, the mm. the larger code base, right? But as a culture, we don't have it. Mm. We have little pieces of it, right? There, there are elements of it, but but it's not integrated into our culture. There's not, like, a deep understanding that, like, the new thing might be cool but like maybe it should be sandboxed until we understand what the longer ramifications are. Mm. So AI right now is a huge example, right? People are like either diving in or terrified of it. But the truth is we just don't know mm. what 10 years of AI does, mm. right? Cause we haven't had 10 years of this level of AI. We've had 10 weeks of it, right? Mm. Or whatever. So when you think about chemicals, right? You think about internal combustion engines, mm. right? It's like, you can understand what they're doing right now and what the short term consequences are. And then, like, when you talk about internal combustion engine, like a giant infrastructure was built around it, right? Mm. So people understood what the like five, 10 year consequences were, mm. 20, 30 year, like building houses, right? Like building roads, right? Mm. A mass amount of thought. And then now we're dealing on like the 100 year consequences, mm. like what happens when we burn huge amounts of fuel like, and pump it into the air, right? Mm-hmm. And there were certain warning signs, but ultimately, like, we just rushed in, like, faster than we probably should have, right? Mm-hmm. Into implementing this technology in this giant way. Mm-hmm. And it enabled a lot of amazing things. I mean, we were talking about the outdoor industry before, like, the entire outdoor industry is built off a car, you mm-hmm. know, like, it doesn't exist without it, mm-hmm. Right obviously you could get into the outdoors before, but it was hard, right? It was like yeah. a different commitment. Now you can jump in a car and be hiking, right? So it's tough, right? It's like, how do you separate the the risks? For, well, not even the risks, like it's like the the unforeseen consequences. Like how do you prepare yourself for that mm. while also moving forward?
0: Mm. What's exciting you these days about the future? To me, like what's exciting about
1: the future is like the change in the literacy. Mm it's like, you have know, literacy, like, how do you read? Like, how do you understand a book? Like, what, you know, what arguments are the mm. authors making, right? And, you know, that's pretty pervasive through culture. Some people are better at it than others. Mm. But now you have, like, media literacy. And I love, mm. like, you know, if you look at TikTok, you, you have a generation coming up that's so media literate mm. that understands how to edit video, right? Mm. How that cut, like, they understand in a way that, like, people my age, like, For unless they're like deep in the industry, like don't understand, Mm. right? And then you just have random 12-year-old kids Mm. or like Northwest, right? Like she's so TikTok literate, right? She's like 10 years old. Mm. And obviously she grew up with famous parents Mm. and around this stuff, but you can tell just like looking at what she makes that she like understands how to put together content better than most 40-year-olds, right? So that's super exciting. And then we're gonna have like another layer, like algorithmic literacy is like the next Mm. phase, right? where like, you know, a lot of people freak out about algorithms, but algorithms are everything. Mm. Even when people like freak out, you know, if people like, I hate like the Twitter algorithmic feed, I like the chronological. Well, the chronological is just another algorithm, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just that it's a little more, you're literate, you understand, like the chronological is like, you're literate enough to understand the chronological and not literate enough to understand like the non-chronological. But kids growing up, these days I think are going to be like super algorithmic mm. literate. They're going to understand it and like know it and be able to play with it and like push mm. it in, in ways that'll be really interesting, exciting. And so that's super exciting. I don't know the future that like, the best part of the future is that you don't know what it, what it's going to be like.
0: Yeah.
1: So there's, there's risks involved, but like I'm most excited for like, getting surprised.
0: Yeah.
1: Some kid coming up with something new that I've never thought of. I never thought of that way. Like, now, that's exciting to the future. Like that's what I love about it is like things that push me out of my comfort zone and teach me new things.
0: I think that's a good place to yeah. end. Is there anything else you'd like to to say or ask?
1: No, I think that's good. That was super interesting.
0: Cool, Abe. Thanks so much. Yeah. This was enlivening, and I think we could go on for hours, but we're going to call it here for this one. All right. Well,
1: fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Cool. It was amazing.
0: Thanks for listening to Internet Misfits. I hope you found the conversation inspiring, helpful, energizing, and insightful. You can find me on the web to continue the conversation on my personal site, joe.universe, which is joe.univer.se. See you out there. Bye-bye.